I'm Robert Sheehan, and this is Wild Stories, an artistic celebration and exploration of the work and life of Oscar Wilde through his fairy tales, The Happy Prince, and other stories. Eyes filled with tears. Oh, on what little things does happiness depend? I have read all that the wise men have written, and all the secrets of philosophy are mine. Yet for want of a red rose... Why can't you be like the happy prince? asked a sensible mother of her little boy who was crying for the moon. The happy prince never dreams of crying for anything. I am glad. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant, it was still winter. In this project, we're bringing together Irish actors and artists to reimagine Oscar Wilde through the prism of his first collection of stories. Composer Michael Gallen and visual artist Felicity Clear have collaborated for over a year on the music and animations of Wilde stories. That's part of Michael's composition you're hearing now. And you can experience how their art, sound and pictures, come together on the project website wildstories.ie. In this five-part series, we're bringing you readings of each story and the music it has inspired, as well as insights from Wilde's grandson, Merlin Holland, and writers on Wilde's work. In our first episode, we brought you an iconic Wilde story, The Happy Prince, and explored how it sits with one of Wilde's last great works, his prison letter, De Profundis. And if you missed it, you can catch up with the podcast online at wildstories.ie. Our second story from Wilde's 1888 collection is The Devoted Friend. And it's quite a dark little tale. If the happy prince is an irony on happiness, then so too the devoted friend is an irony on friendship. But let's hear this wild story before we talk more about it. This time, read for us by Lauren Coe. The Devoted Friend by Oscar Wilde One morning, the old water rat put his head out of his hole. He had bright, beady eyes and stiff grey whiskers, and his tail was like a long bit of black India rubber. The little ducks were swimming about in the pond, looking just like a lot of yellow canaries, and their mother, who was pure white with real red legs, was trying to teach them how to stand on their heads in the water. "'You will never be in the best society unless you can stand on your heads,' she kept saying to them, and every now and then she showed them how it was done. But the little ducks paid no attention to her. They were so young that they did not know what an advantage it is to be in society at all. "'What disobedient children!' cried the old water rat." They really deserve to be drowned. Nothing of the kind, answered the duck. Everyone must make a beginning and parents cannot be too patient. Ah, I know nothing about the feelings of parents, said the water rat. I am not a family man. In fact, I have never been married and I never intend to be. Love is all very well in its way, but friendship is much higher. Indeed, I know of nothing in the world that is either nobler or rarer than a devoted friendship. And what, pray, is your idea of the duties of a devoted friend? asked a green linnet, who was sitting in a willow tree hard by and had overheard the conversation. 
Yes, that is just what I want to know, said the duck. And she swam away to the end of the pond and stood upon her head in order to give her children a good example. What a silly question, cried the water rat. I should expect my devoted friend to be devoted to me, of course. And what would you do in return, said the little bird, swinging upon a silver spray and flapping his tiny wings. I don't understand you, answered the water rat. Let me tell you a story on the subject, said the linnet. Is the story about me, asked the water rat. If so, I will listen to it, for I am extremely fond of fiction. It is applicable to you, answered the linnet, and he flew down, and alighting upon the bank, he told the story of the devoted friend. Once upon a time, said the linnet, there was an honest little fellow named Hans. Was he very distinguished? asked the water rat. No, answered the linnet. I don't think he was distinguished at all, except for his kind heart and his funny, round, good-humoured face. He lived in a tiny cottage all by himself, and every day he worked in his garden. In all the countryside there was no garden so lovely as his. Sweet William grew there, and gilly flowers, and shepherds' purses, and fair maids of France. There were damask roses and yellow roses, lilac crocuses and gold, purple violets and white, columbine and lady smock, marjoram and wild basil, the cowslip and the flower de luce, the daffodil and the clove pink bloomed or blossomed in their proper order as the months went by, one flower taking another flower's place, so that there were always beautiful things to look at and pleasant odours to smell. Little Hans had a great many friends, but the most devoted of all was Big Hugh the Miller. Indeed, so devoted was the rich Miller to Little Hans that he would never go by his garden without leaning over the wall and plucking a large nosegay or a handful of sweet herbs or filling his pockets with plums and cherries if it was the fruit season. Real friends should have everything in common, the Miller used to say, and little Hans nodded and smiled and felt very proud of having a friend with such noble ideas. Sometimes, indeed, the neighbours thought it strange that the miller never gave little Hans anything in return, though he had a hundred sacks of flour stored away in his mill, and six milch cows, and a large flock of woolly sheep. But Hans never troubled his head about these things, and nothing gave him greater pleasure than to listen to all the wonderful things the miller used to say about the unselfishness of true friendship. So little Hans worked away in his garden. During the spring, the summer and the autumn, he was very happy. But when the winter came, and he had no fruit or flowers to bring to the market, he suffered a good deal from cold and hunger, and often had to go to bed without any supper but a few dried pears or some hard nuts. In the winter, also, he was extremely lonely, as the miller never came to see him then. There is no good in my going to see little Hans as long as the snow lasts, the miller used to say to his wife, for when people are in trouble they should be left alone and not be bothered by visitors. That, at least, is my idea about friendship, and I am sure I am right. So I shall wait till the spring comes, and then I shall pay him a visit, and he will be able to give me a large basket of primroses, and that will make him so happy. You are certainly very thoughtful about others, answered the wife, as she sat in her comfortable armchair by the big pine wood fire, 
Very thoughtful indeed. It is quite a treat to hear you talk about friendship. I am sure the clergyman himself could not say such beautiful things as you do, though he does live in a three-storied house and wear a gold ring on his little finger. But could we not ask little Hans up here, said the miller's youngest son. If poor Hans is in trouble, I will give him half my porridge and show him my white rabbits. What a silly boy you are, cried the miller. I really don't know what is the use of sending you to school. You seem not to learn anything. Why, if little Hans came up here and saw our warm fire and our good supper and our great cask of red wine, he might get envious. And envy is a most terrible thing and would spoil anybody's nature. I certainly will not allow Hans' nature to be spoiled. I am his best friend and I will always watch over him and see that he is not led into any temptations. Besides, if Hans came here, he might ask me to let him have some flour on credit, and that I could not do. Flour is one thing, and friendship is another, and they should not be confused. Why, the words are spelt differently and mean quite different things. Everybody can see that. How well you talk, said the miller's wife, pouring herself out a large glass of warm ale. Really, I feel quite drowsy. It is just like being in church. Lots of people act well, answered the miller, but very few people talk well, which shows that talking is the much more difficult thing of the two, and much the finer thing also. And he looked sternly across the table at his little son, who felt ashamed of himself, and he hung his head down and grew quite scarlet and began to cry into his tea. However, he was so young that you must excuse him. Is that the end of the story? asked the water rat. Certainly not, answered the linnet. That is the beginning. Then you are quite behind the age, said the water rat. Every good storyteller nowadays starts with the end and then goes on to the beginning and concludes with the middle. That is the new method. I heard all about it the other day from a critic who was walking around the pond with a young man. He spoke of the matter at great length, and I am sure he must have been right, for he had blue spectacles and a bald head, and whenever the young man made any remark, he always answered, Pooh! But pray, go on with your story. I like the miller immensely. I have all kinds of beautiful sentiments myself, so there is a great sympathy between us. Well, said the linnet, hopping now on one leg and now on the other, as soon as the winter was over and the primroses began to open their pale yellow stars, the miller said to his wife that he would go down and see little Hans. Why, what a good heart you have, cried his wife. You are always thinking of others. And mind you take the big basket with you for the flowers. So the miller tied the sails of the windmill together with a strong iron chain and went down the hill with a basket on his arm. Good morning, little Hans, said the miller. Good morning, said Hans, leaning on his spade and smiling from ear to ear. And how have you been all the winter, said the miller. Well, really, cried Hans, it is very good of you to ask, very good indeed. I am afraid I had a rather hard time of it, but now that the spring has come, I am quite happy, and all my flowers are doing well. We often talked of you during the winter, Hans, said the miller, and wondered how you were getting on. That was kind of you, said Hans. I was half afraid you had forgotten me. 
Hans, I am surprised at you, said the miller. Friendship never forgets. That is the wonderful thing about it. But I am afraid you don't understand the poetry of life. How lovely your primroses are looking, by the by. They certainly are very lovely, said Hans, and it is a most lucky thing for me that I have so many. I'm going to bring them into the market and sell them to the burgomaster's daughter and buy back my wheelbarrow with the money. Buy back your wheelbarrow? You don't mean to say that you have sold it. What a very stupid thing to do. Well, the fact is, said Hans, that I was obliged to. You see, the winter was a very bad time for me, and I really had no money at all to buy bread with. So I first sold the silver buttons off my Sunday coat, and then I sold my silver chain, and then I sold my big pipe, and at last I sold my wheelbarrow. But I am going to buy them all back again now. Hans, said the miller, I will give you my wheelbarrow. It is not in very good repair, indeed. One side is gone, and there is something wrong with the wheel spokes. But in spite of that, I will give it to you. I know it is very generous of me, and a great many people would think me extremely foolish for parting with it. But I am not like the rest of the world. I think that generosity is the essence of friendship. And besides, I have got a new wheelbarrow for myself. Yes, you may set your mind at ease. I will give you my wheelbarrow. Well, really, that is generous of you, said little Hans, and his funny round face glowed all over with pleasure. I can easily put it in repair, as I have a plank of wood in the house. A plank of wood, said the miller. Why, that is just what I want for the roof of my barn. There is a very large hole in it, and the corn will get all damp if I don't stop it up. How lucky you mentioned it. It is quite remarkable how one good action always breeds another. I have given you my wheelbarrow, and now you are going to give me your plank. Of course, the wheelbarrow is worth far more than the plank, but true friendship never notices things like that. Pray, get it at once, and I will set to work in my barn this very day. Certainly, cried little Hans, and he ran into the shed and dragged the plank out. It is not a very big plank, said the miller, looking at it, and I am afraid that after I have mended my barn roof, there won't be any left for you to mend the wheelbarrow with. But, of course, that is not my fault. And now, as I have given you my wheelbarrow, I am sure that you would like to give me some flowers in return. Here is the basket, and mind you fill it quite full. Quite full, said little Hans, rather sorrowfully, for it was really a very big basket, and he knew that if he filled it he would have no flowers left for the market, and he was very anxious to get his silver buttons back. Well, really, answered the miller, as I have given you my wheelbarrow, I don't think that it is much to ask you for a few flowers. I may be wrong, but I should have thought that friendship, true friendship, was quite free from selfishness of any kind. My dear friend, my best friend, cried little Hans, you are welcome to all the flowers in my garden. I would much sooner have your good opinion than my silver buttons any day. And he ran and plucked all his pretty primroses and filled the miller's basket. 
Goodbye, little hands, said the miller, as he went up the hill with the plank on his shoulder and the big basket in his hand. Goodbye, said little hands, as he began to dig away quite merrily, he was so pleased about the wheelbarrow. The next day, he was nailing up some honeysuckle against the porch when he heard the miller's voice calling to him from the road. So he jumped off the ladder and ran down the garden and looked over the wall. There was the miller with a large sack of flour on his back. Dear little hand, said the miller, would you mind carrying this sack of flour for me to market? Oh, I am so sorry, said Hans, but I am really very busy today. I have got all my creepers to nail up and all my flowers to water and all my grass to roll. Well, really, said the miller, I think that considering that I am going to give you my wheelbarrow, it is rather unfriendly of you to refuse. Oh, don't say that, cried little Hans. I wouldn't be unfriendly for the whole world. And he ran in for his cap and trudged off with the big sack on his shoulders. It was a very hot day and the road was terribly dusty. And before Hans had reached the sixth milestone, he was so tired that he had to sit down and rest. However, he went on bravely and at last he reached the market. After he had waited there some time, he sold the sack of flour for a very good price and then he returned home at once, for he was afraid that if he stopped too late, he might meet some robbers on the way. It certainly has been a hard day, said little Hans to himself as he was going to bed. But I am glad I did not refuse the miller, for he is my best friend, and besides, he is going to give me his wheelbarrow. Early the next morning, the miller came down to get the money for his sack of flour, but little Hans was so tired that he was still in bed. Upon my word, said the miller, you are very lazy. Really, considering that I am going to give you my wheelbarrow, I think you might work harder. Idleness is a great sin, and I certainly don't like any of my friends to be idle or sluggish. You must not mind my speaking quite plainly to you. Of course, I should not dream of doing so if I were not your friend. But what is the good of friendship if one cannot say exactly what one means? Anybody can say charming things and try to please and to flatter, but a true friend always says unpleasant things and does not mind giving pain. Indeed, if he is really a true friend, he prefers it, for he knows that then he is doing good. I am very sorry, said little Hans, rubbing his eyes and pulling off his nightcap, but I was so tired that I thought I would lay in bed for a little time and listen to the birds singing. Do you know that I always work better after hearing the birds sing? Well, I am glad of that, said the miller, clapping little hands on the back, for I want you to come up to the mill as soon as you are dressed and mend my barn roof for me. Poor little Hans was very anxious to go and work in his garden, for his flowers had not been watered for two days. But he did not like to refuse the miller, as he was such a good friend to him. Do you think it would be unfriendly of me if I said I was busy? he inquired in a shy and timid voice. Well, really, answered the miller, I do not think it is much to ask of you, considering that I am going to give you my wheelbarrow. But of course, if you refuse, I will go and do it myself. Oh, on no account, cried little Hans, and he jumped out of bed and dressed himself and went up to the barn. He worked there all day long till sunset, and at sunset the miller came to see how he was getting on. 
Have you mended the hole in the roof yet, little Hans? cried the miller in a cheery voice. It is quite mended, answered little Hans, coming down the ladder. Ah, said the miller, there is no work so delightful as the work one does for others. It is certainly a great privilege to hear you talk, answered little Hans, sitting down and wiping his forehead. A very great privilege. But I am afraid I shall never have such beautiful ideas as you have. Oh, they will come to you, said the miller, but you must take more pains. At present, you have only the practice of friendship. Some day, you will have the theory also. Do you really think I shall? asked little Hans. I have no doubt of it, answered the miller. But now that you have mended the roof, you had better go home and rest, for I want you to drive my sheep to the mountain tomorrow. Poor little Hans was afraid to say anything to this, and early the next morning the miller brought his sheep round to the cottage, and Hans started off with them to the mountain. It took him the whole day to get there and back, and when he returned he was so tired that he went off to sleep in his chair and did not wake up till it was broad daylight. "'What a delightful time I shall have in my garden,' he said, and he went to work at once. But somehow he was never able to look after his flowers at all, for his friend the miller was always coming round and sending him off on long errands or getting him to help at the mill. Little Hans was very much distressed at times, as he was afraid his flowers would think he had forgotten them, but he consoled himself by the reflection that the miller was his best friend. Besides, he used to say, he is going to give me his wheelbarrow, and that is an act of pure generosity. So little Hans worked away for the miller, and the miller said all kinds of beautiful things about friendship, which Hans took down in a notebook and used to read over at night, for he was a very good scholar. Now, it happened one evening that little Hans was sitting by his fireside when a loud rap came at the door. It was a very wild night, and the wind was blowing and roaring round the house so terribly that at first he thought it was merely the storm. But a second rap came, and then a third, louder than any of the others. It is some poor traveller, said little Hans to himself, and he ran to the door. There stood the miller, with a lantern in one hand and a big stick in the other. Dear little Hans, cried the miller, I am in great trouble. My little boy has fallen off a ladder and hurt himself, and I am going for the doctor. But he lives so far away, and it is such a bad night that it has just occurred to me that it would be much better if you went instead of me. You know that I am going to give you my wheelbarrow, and so it is only fair that you should do something for me in return. Certainly, cried little Hans. I take it as quite a compliment you're coming to me, and I will start off at once. But you must lend me your lantern, as the night is so dark that I am afraid I might fall into the ditch. I am very sorry, answered the miller, but it is my new lantern, and it would be a great loss to me if anything happened to it. Well, never mind, I will do without it, cried little Hans, and he took down his great fur coat and his warm scarlet cap and tied a muffler round his throat and started off. What a dreadful storm it was! The night was so black that little Hans could hardly see, and the wind was so strong that he could scarcely stand. However, he was very courageous, and after he had been walking around three hours, he arrived at the doctor's house and knocked at the door. 
there, cried the doctor, putting his head out of his bedroom window. Little hands, doctor. What do you want, little hands? The miller's son has fallen from a ladder and has hurt himself, and the miller wants you to come at once. All right, said the doctor, and he ordered his horse and his big boots and his lantern, and he came downstairs and rode off in the direction of the miller's house, little hands trudging behind him. But the storm grew worse and worse, and the rain fell in torrents, and little hands could not see where he was going or keep up with the horse. At last, he lost his way and wandered off on the moor, which was a very dangerous place, as it was full of deep holes. And there, poor little hands was drowned. His body was found the next day by some goat herds floating in a great pool of water and was brought back by them to the cottage. Everybody went to little Hans' funeral as he was so popular and the miller was the chief mourner. As I was his best friend, said the miller, it is only fair that I should have the best place. So he walked at the head of the procession in a long black cloak and every now and then he wiped his eyes with a big pocket handkerchief. Little Hans is certainly a great loss to everyone, said the blacksmith when the funeral was over, and they were all seated comfortably in the inn, drinking spiced wine and eating sweet cakes. A great loss to me, at any rate, answered the miller. Why, I had as good as given him my wheelbarrow, and now I really don't know what to do with it. It is very much in my way at home, and it is in such bad repair that I could not get anything for it if I sold it. I will certainly take care not to give anything away again. One always suffers for being generous. Well, said the water rat, after a long pause. Well, that is the end, said the linnet. But what became of the miller? asked the water rat. Oh, I don't really know, replied the linnet, and I am sure that I don't care. It is quite evident that you have no sympathy in your nature, said the water rat. I am afraid you don't quite see the moral of the story, remarked the linnet. The what? screamed the water rat. The moral. Do you mean to say that the story has a moral? Certainly, said the linnet. Well, really, said the water rat in a very angry manner. I think you should have told me that before you began. If you had done so, I certainly would not have listened to you. In fact, I should have said poo, like the critic. However, I can say it now. So he shouted out poo at the top of his voice and gave a whisk with his tail and went back into his hole. And how do you like the water rat? asked the duck, who came paddling up some minutes afterwards. He has a great many good points, but for my own part I have a mother's feelings, and I can never look at a confirmed bachelor without the tears coming into my eyes. I am rather afraid that I have annoyed him, answered the linnet. The fact is that I told him a story with a moral. Ah, that is always a very dangerous thing to do, said the duck, and I quite agree with her.
The Devoted Friend by Oscar Wilde, beautifully read for us there by Lauren Coe. It's the tragic story of little hands whose innocence, generosity and life is consumed by the scheming Miller, who, a bit like the town councillors and mayor at the close of The Happy Prince, is both oblivious and indifferent to the sacrifice involved. The Miller even sees himself as the victim, saying the lessons he's learned from poor Hans's death is, I will certainly take care not to give away anything again. One certainly suffers for being generous. It's a tale told, the Linnet says, with a moral, much to the fury of the water rat who's having none of it and storms off. Telling a story with a moral, that's always a dangerous thing to do, says the duck. But what was Oscar Wilde's social vision? If he was holding a mirror up to man in society, what did he want us to see? It's a story about storytelling, but it's also a story about friendship. And it's an ironic title because who is the devoted friend? The Miller thinks that he's the devoted friend, whereas Little Hans thinks that he's the devoted friend. But actually, you could retitle The Happy Prince, The Devoted Friend, as well. Even the selfish giant could be seen as the devoted friend. So the stories are about friendship. And one of the things that really struck me when I was researching Wilde was his great capacity for friendship. He had a wonderful capacity for friendship and he had some terrific friends. In many ways, his life was tragic. And I think we are still living through the myth-making of that tragedy. I think that the devoted friend is a deeply black piece of humour. I think we're meant to laugh as well as be uncomfortable with the behaviour of hands. The story is told to a water rat in order to give him a clue as to how he should behave. It's a story with a moral. The moral is going to try to change the water rat, who's an egotist. But the water rat at the end doesn't seem to have gotten the point. He thinks the miller is the greatest person in the story and he wants to know more about the miller. And the duck tells him, you've missed the point of the story. You haven't figured it out. This is a story with a moral and the moral is about you. And he says, well, I'm not listening to this. I'm, I'm out of here. There's Wilde warning us, make sure we understand what the moral of these stories are. Don't let's miss it, because we're too caught up in looking for echoes of our own selves. And the frame story of the devoted friend helps force us into making sure that we see these stories in the context of storytelling, moral storytelling, and the lessons that we need to get from them. He was a very gifted man. He died years before his time. Once he was tried and went to prison, came out from prison in 1897, he was a broken man, really. So his life was tragic. But even through all that, he maintained friendships with people who were very generous to him and who thought the world of him. One of them was his executor, Robbie Ross. And Robbie Ross was his devoted friend and he looked after Wilde's estate. And at a time when people barely dared to mention Wilde's name, he set about publishing the first collection of Wilde's works. So he really kept Wilde's literary reputation alive until such time as social mores caught up with Wilde's life. And, you know, the crime for which he was convicted wasn't a crime anymore. And at that stage, 
the devoted friendship of Robbie Ross made it possible for Wilde's works to be discussed in the way that we're discussing them now. That's Anne Markey and Jarlath Colleen, who are both researchers of Wilde's work at Trinity College Dublin. It's interesting in some ways in that he has a lot of literary antecedents and one of them is definitely William Blake, the English romantic poet, who again had this vision of childhood as a time of innocence. Not necessarily naivety, but a time of innocence. And that Blake really advocated holding on to that innocence as a way of looking at the world throughout your life. And Wilde does something similar in these stories. The Devoted Friend is a favourite of Eleanor Fitzsimons. She's a biographer of Wilde and the author of a new book on his life called Wilde's Women. I'm fascinated by The Devoted Friend because I think that it is a political commentary on Ireland and on the way England was treating Ireland and the Miller treats hands the way the British were treating the Irish and the consequences were much the same when you look at famine and the way Hans's life turned out where he gave everything away that he had, ended up with nothing but still thought of himself as the Miller's great friend. So I, I, I find that very interesting as an interpretation. But just how Irish a writer is Oscar Wilde? I think you need to be careful about the way we construct this, the Irishness of the fairy tales. Charles Killeen there. In one sense, it's, it's, it's a generic issue. It's a question of genre. If you look at the way Irish people were and Ireland was being discussed in that, this period, it was often being discussed as if it was a land of children, childlike. Colonial spaces are often considered sort of nurseries and colonised peoples are often configured as rather childlike not capable of adult responsibility, particularly the responsibility of self-rule. So I think that Wilde uh, grew up with an awareness of that. His mother was quite fond of talking about the childlike qualities of the Irish, for example. As much as she was an Irish nationalist, she had quite a patronising view of the Irish natives. And she talked about them as childlike, full of magic, full of wonder, full of enchantment, full of great stories and talk. So that he would have been in a milieu which associated Ireland and the child quite straightforwardly. He was also himself often called a sort of grown-up child. One of his friends said he was like a schoolboy all his life. He never fully grew up. So he too was often considered as quite childlike. Oscar's mother, Jane Wilde, was quite a brilliant and unusual woman. She wrote under the pen name Speranza in the Irish nationalist paper The Nation. Such an interesting woman, really a fascinating character. Her name was Jane Elgie and she came from a long line of staunch Unionist Protestant, originally English, but then in subsequent generations Irish businessmen and clergy and well-to-do Dubliners. She herself rebelled against all of that. She became very involved in the nationalist movement, triggered really by the death of Thomas Davis. She really would have had no involvement in politics at all and no real awareness until she saw this enormous funeral passing through the streets of Dublin one day and inquired as to who this outpouring of adulation was for, and it was Thomas Davis. 
And she then became very interested in the movement. She read the Nation newspaper, had to hide it from her parents and her family because this would have been frowned upon. Started to submit poetry, which at first were translations of poems that she read, which she felt were suitably rousing, and then started to compose her own poetry. And in fact, she attributed her involvement with the nationalist movement in Ireland to the awakening of what she called her genius. She had a lot of confidence about her. She certainly saw herself as a genius. While it is debated how much influence Oscar Wilde's Irishness had on his work, and in particular on his fairy tales, one of the biggest influences on his life was his mother, Jane Wilde, who was herself a writer immersed in both Irish folklore and Irish nationalism. Jane Wilde had a profound influence on her son. In fact, he stated the reason for becoming a poet as being the influence of his mother as a poet. She was very influential in other ways as well. Politically, not so much. He never displayed much of an interest in Irish politics, but that was really quite pragmatic, I think, because he was based in London and he was playing very much to an English audience. But certainly in terms of his wit and his interest in people, it was in fact W.B. Yeats who said that if you met Oscar's mother and his father, you'd be in no way surprised that he was one of the finest talkers in London and Dublin. Merlin Holland sees his grandfather's relationship with England, and in particular London society, as both ambiguous and complex. He does say quite clearly at the time that his play Salome is banned in London that he's thinking of taking up French nationality. And he says, I'm not English, I'm Irish, which is a very different thing. So he's making a clear distinction himself between the English and the Irish. And I think this probably, I'd say almost undoubtedly, comes down to him through his firebrand of a mother who's writing anti-English poetry back in 1848. And indeed, when asked if, I think she applied for a British government pension at one stage and was given to understand that unless she sort of renounced all her anti-English past, there was no hope of her getting such a thing. It was largely through her husband, Sir William, who had been very much involved in the Irish censuses, which is the basis on which she could have got it. And she, she is supposed to have said, me do such a thing? Never. So she didn't get her pension. She got one from the Royal Literary Fund instead, but she was an enormous influence in his life, and as obviously was his father. But it was London that shaped Oscar as much as Dublin. It was London in the sense which both made him and broke him. And when the establishment closes ranks in front of you, you haven't got a hope in hell. And that's exactly what happened. But he needed that establishment. He poked fun at that establishment in the plays. They accepted this mild poking of fun at them in the plays, and they laughed, and they flocked to the theatres to see them. And I think there's a very complicated relationship he has with the British at that time. He needs them, and he conforms. I've always said that the stories themselves, uh, if you take them, the Happy Prince and other tales, if you take them as a whole, he is attacking selfishness and greed and hypocrisy. But far be it from me to say that he was a hypocrite, but there are occasionally times in Oscar's life when one feels that it's to his advantage to actually swallow his pride and knuckle down and do things which perhaps he otherwise wouldn't do. And I think that's probably part of his relationship with the British. Whatever about Ireland's influence on his work or the Irishness of his writing, Anne Markey sees Wilde as fundamentally a European writer with an international perspective. 
I think that we have reclaimed him and I think that reclamation was long overdue. I think at times the reclamation of while the Irishman goes overboard because I think Wilde saw himself as European as well. He did say things like, I'm not English, I am Irish, but he saw himself very much as a European. His mother was a translator of works from various European languages. Wilde himself spoke fluent French, wrote Salome in French. He learned German from an early age. He had a classical education. And there are echoes of all kinds of French writers in these stories, like the poet Théophile Gautier, from whom the Swallow's description of Egypt is taken in The Happy Prince. Um, Gustave Flaubert is echoed in the way the sentence structures are set up and also in some of the descriptions of Egypt in The Happy Prince. So Wilde saw himself very much as a European. I think it is important to reclaim Wilde the Irishman, but to remember that Ireland was also part of Europe. And I would say too that I think Marilyn Holland, more than anybody else, has done his grandfather great service because he has worked tirelessly at producing, bringing to public notice papers, letters, scripts, unknown facts about Wilde and making them widely available. And I think that he has done a huge amount to draw attention to what a complex man his grandfather was and to show how many facets to his life and work there were. I think for, for many years, for somebody like Merlin Holland, it was very difficult to fully embrace the whole Oscar Wilde story, certainly from from what I've heard him say, he found it very difficult that people wanted to meet him and touch him and, and be near him because they felt almost like he was a conduit to Oscar Wilde. And he said, well, I didn't ask for that. I didn't necessarily want to take on that role. And it took him a long time to really embrace that. He was very close to his own father. His own father seems to have been a really wonderful, warm man. And his own father had a dreadful childhood and his life was blighted by what happened to his father. And obviously Constance's life was blighted in many ways. So there are very conflicting emotions there. It's not an easy thing to embrace the whole Oscar Wilde story and, and to be his descendant. I get an email through saying, happy birthday, Oscar. Oh, yes, it's his birthday today. And I think, in a sense, that rather reflects on my upbringing. He was part of the wallpaper. We didn't really talk about him. He wasn't somebody that my mother had ever known. She was born 10 years after he died. My father last saw him when he was, what, uh, eight or nine? So there, was, there were no common memories. There was no, do you remember when Grandpa did this or that? So we would have been discussing Oscar Wilde through the latest biography and saying, what do you think of uh, so-and-so's rendering of Oscar as a character in a film or whatever? We just didn't do that. So he was there and he was part of the, the background to the family. It's a huge weight of expectation to be the descendant of Oscar Wilde, isn't it? It must be a very difficult thing to be. I, I know one thing I do remember is in 1954, the plaque, the blue uh, LCC as it was then, plaque was put on his house in Tite Street. And I was pulled out of school and brought up to London and I had to be there when the plaque was unveiled. And we all went off and had lunch at the Savoy afterwards. 
and I found myself in my sort of eight-year-old scrawl having to sign my name on people's menus and not quite understanding why I was doing it. But that was my first really conscious memory of having anything to do with Oscar Wilde at all. My father recorded in his diaries that I was walking down with him, walking down Shaftesbury Avenue, where there was some revival of a wild play on at the time. And I said to him, Daddy, Oscar Wilde, isn't that something to do with you? <laughs> I don't remember saying that myself, but I suppose I would have been probably about six at the time. But I suppose it must have sunk in somewhere through listening to my parents, overhearing, as children do, with their long ears. Because, of course, you know, in the 1950s, when I was growing up, homosexuality in England was still illegal. People were imprisoned for it. And it was... I think a case of keeping Oscar Wilde and his private life very much separated. You know, the English middle classes would go and laugh at his plays and read the fairy stories to their children. But if their children said, oh, we heard that you know, Oscar was sent to prison, the, the subject would you know, be changed. You, you, one had to keep this monster of depravity apart from all the wonderful things that he'd written. And I think that lasted very much up until the mid-1960s when, of course, the the act under which he'd been convicted and imprisoned was finally repealed. I think that it is really only recently in the last decade or so that we have come to properly embrace and fully appreciate what a wonderful citizen Oscar Wilde was, what a wonderful son of this nation. And I suppose because of our own history and our Catholicism and our attitude towards homosexuality, people seem to have struggled with how to deal with him, with how to deal with his, his genius and his wonderful stories in the context of his life and his behaviour, I suppose, as they would see it. I think it is really only in recent times that he's been as celebrated as he deserves to be, unequivocally, as this wonderful storyteller, this incredible man with an incredible intellect. Wilde's wife, Constance, changed the family name to Holland to try and protect their young sons, Cyril and Vivian, after Oscar's imprisonment. My father spent a lot of his life, fortunately in some ways, under another name. And if he had had the name Wilde between 1900 and 1945, when there was a, already sort of glimmerings of Oscar's renaissance, in a way, it would have been very, very difficult for him. And I think, in part, the fact that he lived under, in a sense, an assumed name was a help to him. But it didn't alter the fact that it was a life of concealment, and he always felt that people were sort of whispering and pointing behind his perhaps Oscar Wilde's son as a sort of curiosity. Fortunately, that's now all past, which is as it should be. For Merlin, keeping the Holland name is a way of remembering what happened, not just to Oscar, but to his family. Well, I think it's history, and that's the way it should be. And if people still need to ask, I can still say, well, that's what Victorian hypocrisy and a complete lack of understanding for a different sexual polarity did. It ruined this man, although, as he says in De Profundis, nobody but I could have ruined myself. Um, but, uh, no, it's history and it's... I'm more my father's son than my grandfather's grandson.
Michael Gallen's music for The Devoted Friend is a haunting, disturbing piece called Shelter, featuring the orchestra with a solo violin and a child's voice. Shelter was definitely the most difficult movement of the piece, or I would say that the story was possibly the most difficult to penetrate. Really, the complexity of Oscar Wilde's thought, his interrogation of ethics, and the way that he seems to hold paradoxes together in the stories really comes out in The Devoted Friend, which is a story about a very simple man called Hans, who's a gardener, and his relationship with the local miller, who is a very powerful man and basically exploits him. It happened that at the time that I was composing it, two things were at the forefront of my mind. One was the, the migrant crisis in Europe, and I had a huge sense of this relationship between one very powerful force and a much smaller force that's kind of dependent on it. So as I was composing the piece, that was the dynamic, kind of big and small or powerful and vulnerable. I also happened to be down in Kilraelig in Kerry on a residency when I was focusing on that particular movement. So I was surrounded by the sound of the sea, the Storm Desmond was happening at the time. And I had this idea of having a very fragile solo violin part that would kind of drift through the piece, sort of representative of the smaller, more vulnerable character that would keep on becoming invited into this texture by the orchestra, but then would immediately be kind of violently overthrown, you know, like, like a flower in a storm, just w this one very vulnerable thing. And in the story, this character ends up drowning in a, in a bog hole in the mirrors. And so in the piece, the violin is always teetering on the edge of, of destruction. I also, it just so happened when I was down in the house, I was washing a saucepan one day and I kind of knocked the wooden spoon against it and I had this beautiful sound, which was where the, the water in the saucepan kind of changed pitch. Um, and because I had so much time in my hands down there, I ended up taking it and slowing it down and reversing it and it created this huge roar, a little bit like the sound of a whale. And that became the tape part for the piece. As I developed, I kind of fell more and more in love with the sound world of that. So I actually ended up doing a huge spectral analysis of that sound and scoring it out for the orchestra. So at the end of that piece, you'll have the solo violin part, but then there are these massive atonal chords that are based on the harmonic spectrum of water in a saucepan. And I think that it really does capture that dynamic of a small thing and how reliant it can be on larger forces around it.
Shelter from Michael Gallon's Wild Stories Suite, inspired by Oscar Wilde's The Devoted Friend, performed there by the RT Concert Orchestra, with violin soloist Mia Cooper and conducted by Gavin Maloney. Next time, I'll bring you the third piece from Michael's work, and actor Brian Gleeson reads Oscar Wilde's dark comic satire, The Remarkable Rocket. She was a Russian princess, and had driven all the way from Finland in a sledge drawn by six reindeer. The sledge was shaped like a great golden swan, and between the swan's wings lay the little princess herself. So join me then. And you can find podcasts and see the beautiful artwork by Felicity Clear with Michael's music on the website wildstories.ie. We've also added the text version of each story so you can read, listen and enjoy this wild journey. Our thanks to our commentators Merlin Holland, Eleanor Fitzsimons, Anne Markey and Jarlath Killeen. Wild Stories is an Athena Media production for RTE Lyric FM made with the funding support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV licence fee. And you can share your thoughts on Twitter and Facebook with us via the at Wild Stories social media accounts and use the hashtag Wild Stories. I'm Robert Sheehan. Thanks for listening.